what I found to be more beneficial is proving my worth to someone first. And what that really means to me is, as I call a little bit of the servant leadership or generous heart type of space that I operate from, is look, if I come into your business, you don't have to trust that I know what I'm doing. Let me prove it to you, right? It's all right with me. Let's start it off as just a very simple consultative type of relationship. And let's put some benchmarks in place that if I help you grow to a certain level that we both agree to, then we're agreeing to the current value is the buy-in versus something in the future. Or we're agreeing to visit what it would look like to get more of my time in exchange for some equity in the business. So it's just believe in showing up and proving what it is that we can do. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. Welcome back to Ice Cream with Investors. I'm your host, Matt Four, and on today's show, we have Ryan Nidell. Ryan is a real estate investor, entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and COO for many different companies. The reason why I wanted to have Ryan on the show is because as I continue to learn and evolve, I'm always interested in best practices on how I can scale, how I can multiply my efforts. And on today's show, Ryan walks through different ways that he's used to help scale multiple different companies in a CEO role. So tune in to learn more about how you can scale any business that you have going on today. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. We like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? Oh, man. So I love a place called Grater's in Columbus, Ohio, where I'm from. Grater's has this raspberry chocolate chip ice cream that is just my go-to. So it's raspberry ice cream with big, healthy chocolate chip chunks in it. That's my go-to. We were chatting beforehand. I make it up to Columbus specifically in Cincinnati a lot. And everybody nerds out about Grater's and I still haven't had it. What is it about their ice cream that makes it awesome? I find that people from Ohio are incredibly loyal to Ohio. So when something starts in Ohio, even if it's not that great, you just have to say it's the best thing ever. Now, the ice cream is good. I don't know what makes it so good. It's just, for me, the uniqueness is that they, I feel like they might manufacture their own chocolate and just randomly hit it with a sledgehammer and then throw it in. So the chocolate chip chunks are not unified or uniform. You get huge things. It's just, it's a little bit of an experience. To your point about Ohio people loving Ohio, I'm going to say, piss some people off here and say, that's how I feel about Skyline Chili. It's just not that good, but people love it. it I get it, right? I used to love it. And I started questioning, like, why did, I was born in Cincinnati, right? My year went to Miami of Ohio. So all that Cincinnati area. And I'm like, this is not that good at all. Like, <laughs> even just a chili, let alone a three-way with freaking spaghetti on it and stuff. Man, I support that. Good way to clean you out. That's for sure. Absolutely. All right. Tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? So what I do today is a combination of business growth, strategic business growth, and really manage a small private equity fund. So to say it in a more generalized or maybe even specific manner is I find undervalued assets, could be real estate, could be businesses themselves. I look at them and I analyze what things I can bring to the table to make them more successful. From then I get to come in either as a consultant on, on the side and offer strategic value or deploy capital to come and buy a, a large portion or even the entire thing to help it run for a season, help it become more profitable, more successful, then sell it on business. Yeah, I love that. And as we enter some choppy times, I think in here in 2023, as we're going into 2023, being efficient is very key in anything that you're doing, whether it's your W-2 role or running a business or how we do real estate investing. One of the things that struck me about you and some of my research is that you're actually a real estate investor as well. Can you tell us a little bit, let's start at like, what does your portfolio look like today? And then I want to go into some strategies you do to find those assets. Yeah, so my real estate investing journey started about my first house at 23. And I would love to say it was an investment 
specific home, but it was a single family home. It was for me. I started working, made some what I thought was good money. So it was a little $225,000 house in a good neighborhood. And as luck would have it, started dating a girl and she asked me to move in with her. And so I have this house. I haven't moved into it. I was, I was remodeling it and renovating it. I say, you know what? I'm not going to sell it. I'm going to find a tenant for it. So found a tenant for that. And that same tenant was in that house for, gosh, six or seven years, right? They had went through a financial hardship themselves. Nice family, couple children. It was just a really good fit. Like the best type of possible tenant you could have. Like no headaches, didn't call at all. I didn't bother them. Every once in a while, I'll stop by. And then I went through a called an interruption in my life in, gosh, about eight years ago. So 14, 2014. Hit some bump, some rough spots, had sold off a business, had started another business. Business didn't go the right way and was out of cash. Right? When I probably should have declared bankruptcy, but they had to tap into every bit of resources that I had. And part of that resource was to sell this property, right? It had some equity left in it. I needed the capital just to be able to exist. So sold that off. And I was literally renting a house at 30, right? From making what I was pretty good money at, like I said, I exited a business for mid eight figures and the money was still gone. And so dug myself out of that hole over the next three or four years, ended up you know, buying a house that I live in now. And then my portfolio has five, might be six right now, six, six single family homes in it all throughout Columbus, right? These sweet spot for us have been finding these assets that are in emerging areas in Columbus. They're $120,000, $130,000 homes that we can put $30,000 into, refi on the backside at two ten, put a tenant in there for mortgage payment plus 30%. And really a pretty simple model. But re- one of the fun things is, Matt, I can't help but keep my mind in private equity. And so when I'm buying these houses, I don't know if this is a unique strategy, but it felt unique to me at the moment. And of course, having an LLC own them all, I treated the LLC like a real business itself, not just a real estate holding company. The LLC has a P&L, right? Just like anything else, profit and loss. And so what I've done is started to shop business on the open market, not shop the real estate because people will buy businesses at a multiple of revenue, which is an add-on in addition to what the assets inside the LLC are worth. And all of a sudden, this five or six, it might be six houses now, forgive me, but either way, right? It's this little tranche of, of business, little tranche of houses that one, two, one, three, 1.2, 1.3 million in, in value. But then the free cash flow from the business throws another 250 grand on top of that for an exit. So shopping that around, have a couple of suitors I'm entertaining. For me, I think the real estate market, this is not my strength by any means. So I need to acknowledge that as I'm saying this to you. The real estate market, I'd rather have some cash on the sidelines here in another six or eight months to be able to buy buy different asset classes to me, get into multifamily, even at some commercial properties around Columbus, just because it's home for me. And I can still get a good premium on the houses I have now. Are you so you're just basically trying to sell it as a portfolio then? Absolutely. Yeah. So sell it as a thriving business. It's really I'm selling a business. I'm not selling real estate. The business that I'm selling happens to have real estate in it. So you're buying the cash flow of my business and the operational efficiency of the business. That's all you're buying. I love it. I love it. That's how we typically look at commercial assets anyways, is what's your NOI at the end of the day? What's your net operating income? And then we're just going to apply a multiple on that and sell it. Not very dissimilar from private equity. Absolutely. So we were talking beforehand about some of the strategies you have to go out there and find these uh, properties. Can you talk us through how you're finding these properties today? Can This is the secret sauce. As you're listening to (laughs) us right now, I'm going to encourage you to get a pen and paper out. This is something that I haven't seen many other people do. And I'm sure there are, right? I'm I'm not an innovator by any means. It just made logical sense to me where 
my specialty is business, making businesses run more profitably, more efficiently and helping them scale. And so I got to thinking, what if we find someone that has access to homeowners consistently? And the first entry point to that was actually a roofing company that right, specializes in single family roof insulation, negotiates with insurance companies, but also does cash payments. And right, I've got this team of 10 sales guys that float around Columbus, finding roofs to start with. And they know loosely our buy box inside the real estate that completely clued into it, but they're clued into it enough. Then they're incentivized not only to put a roof on, which we compensate them, but we'll spiff them on any house that we end up buying into the portfolio. In addition to that, I got thinking, man, the, the roofing company is nice. There's, there's good profit to it. But now we have the trust of a homeowner. What else can I offer them? So we went out and bought a, a landscaping service, right? Lawn mowing landscaping. Because we had the customer base, I might as well monetize them, enhance lifetime customer value. So now I have a landscaping crew that's going out doing the same thing. It's like, gosh, there's homeowners now really trust us. We're mowing their yard. We're putting on a roof. So there's a renovation and rehab company, really construction company, that now supports not only the homeowners, but also helps us find real estate. We've done quite a few wholesale deals in the past year where they haven't fit our buy box, but they fit other people's. Quick 10, 15, $20,000 hits here and there. Right, Every $20,000 helps at the end of the day. And it's been fun to see the inner correlation between these three service providing businesses, not only how they provide value to one another, but then how they provide value to the real estate holding company as a whole. It's just a very synergistic relationship where one of the things I would encourage you as you're hopefully taking a couple notes here is to look for asset classes that can provide value to other assets that you own and have this incredible vehicle in real estate that you have all types of positive things you can do from a cash flow standpoint, from a tax saving standpoint. It really can free up some of this capital to go out and acquire some of these other businesses using owner financing for a tranche of them because the service owners are tired. They haven't thought of things this way. And so you end up increasing the value of the business you bought in addition to increasing the value of your portfolio, all by thinking a little bit more strategically. Yeah, you're just out there hustling. I love it. I love it. You mentioned three different services business, and I want to shift the conversation now to our private equity portion of this conversation. What does your business portfolio, your private equity portfolio look like today? And then what kind of business are you looking to add to that portfolio? Yeah, really good question, Matt. So I have a company, kind of the crown jewel of my portfolio right now is a company called Mitha. It's a Kratom business. Kratom's this emerging product out of Indonesia. It's a leaf that you take a little bit, it might give you a little additional energy. You take a lot of it, it's more of a sedative feel. I've helped grow that business from $5 million three years ago to just south of $100 million in revenue right now. It's a really Whoa. fun growth yeah. trajectory. That's then led itself into needing to buy a couple manufacturing businesses to support our demand. So a little bit of vertical integration. So I have two manufacturing businesses that manufacture supplements for Young Living, doTERRA, lots of big box companies that you might have heard of before. We manufacture for a lot of them. Then that's kind of one cut out, one carve out of the portfolio right now. Another carve out's actually digital marketing businesses. So I have 10 political websites that are just content websites. So it's content marketing across the board. That content marketing then grows a pretty big list. That list then has led me into buying things that the list would also buy. So silver coins and manufacturers, all types of very random things that help support the data there. So that's part of it. And then I have Breakpart a brake sensor manufacturing company. It's just a little thing on the side that's there. Gosh, the last part of the portfolio is a beef business. So a, a literal calf to cow operation, slaughterhouse, organic grass-fed, no hormone beef business. So I can't say there's a specific business, Matt, that I'm looking for. What I look for is really high quality operators, people that love what they do, they're passionate about what they do, and they're willing to raise their hand and say, I've got it to a certain point and I don't know how to get it to the next point. And I'd like some help. 
And that help can be more of a consultative relationship where I'm not a, a predatory private equity type of guy, at least the way I view it. It's, can I add value here? Yes or no. And then if I can add value, we explore what that value looks like. Maybe it's just some advice from time to time. Maybe it's rolling up my sleeves a little bit and helping with operations, or maybe it's bringing capital to the table, buying a part of it and really dedicating a portion of, I call it my life force, to helping somebody else succeed. So are you in exchange of consultative services or coming on as a COO and helping with the operations or whatever that looks like? Are you taking out a portion of equity in the business for that exchange there? Oh, I have before. And I'll tell you, Matt, what I found to be more beneficial is proving my worth to someone first. And what that really means to me is, as I call a little bit of the servant leadership or generous heart type of space that I operate from, is look, if I come into your business, you don't have to trust that I know what I'm doing. Let me prove it to you. Right? It's all right with me. Let's start it off as just a very simple consultative type of relationship. And let's put some benchmarks in place that if I help you grow to a certain level that we both agree to, then we're agreeing to the current value is the buy-in versus something in the future. Or we're agreeing to visit what it would look like to get more of my time in exchange for some equity in the business. So it's just believe in showing up and proving what it is that we can do. And what that's led to me, Matt, there's a couple of businesses that I've shown up and we've seen some success. And I realized after three or four months, this just isn't going to be a good fit for all of us. It's not that the business isn't successful. It's not that it's not profitable. It's that we have different goals for the business. And I don't want to get into a power play later. I feel accomplished because there's a framework that I've helped people with. I don't need to saddle myself in or wedge myself in for equity. Then I got to force you to buy back later. It just didn't feel right to me. Yeah, got it. Got it. So you mentioned your framework and that was where I was going to go next. When you go in with a small business owner, we were again chatting beforehand, there's a skill set needed to take from $0 to a million dollars to let's call it $10 million, 10 million to 100 to 500 or to a billion. What are you typically seeing the issues with the companies that you go in and help? Are there any common threads there? And then we'll take it from there. Yeah, absolutely, Matt. So there's certainly some common threads. Most of the time, I'm dealing with first-generation business owners, guys or gals that have come up with a brilliant idea. They're through pig-headed discipline and determination, they figured out how to get it to a point in the future. And that point, they're locked up. They don't know what's past that point. Their lives are typically pretty good. My specialty is not helping people whose hair is on fire, as I call it. It's not the startup. Those aren't really my strength. That's not what I enjoy. I enjoy things that are working that we can make them work more efficiently. And so from that point, what's happened is most entrepreneurs haven't documented their process. They haven't taken time to record or create SOPs. They haven't taken time to understand their financials. They haven't taken time to think about how to minimize their tax obligations. They haven't taken time to reevaluate the customer journey from the first time to how do you increase lifetime customer value because they've just been strapped into this rocket ship growing from wherever they were to where they're at now. What I like to do is in those first conversations, have a deep dive into the financials. I go through their customer process and see what that looks like. And I bring those results and say, okay, look, whether we work together or not, I can see right now, I didn't get an email follow-up in this amount of time. I didn't get one at all. Your sales rep called once and then hasn't called back for 10 days. Like there's some really low-hanging fruit, but as unsexy as this sounds, the majority of issues that I see come from a lack of consistency and a lack of process documentation yeah. because it's not fun, especially if you're a marketer, a salesman, or lady, you're aggressively growing the business. You don't want to pause to document processes. So I share this with everybody. I'd love to share it here. Okay with it. That there's an incredibly simple way to document a process. There's this crazy little plugin for Chrome called Loom, OM, if you're unfamiliar with it. They have a free version. You can record, I think it's up to a four-minute video. Yep. When you press record on Loom, you can decide to record your whole screen, your screen and your face, just audio, just video. It's got a lot of flexibility to it. But while you're doing a task, 
as you're about to do something, you do more than once. And I typically start with more than once a month. Then we go down to more than once a week. Press that little room record button and just start talking about what it is you're doing. Then you ship that over to a VA somewhere in the world. Don't care where the VA is. The only information you give the VA is type this up, document it for me, and put it in like step one through 35. Don't worry about what he or she does. Just put it there. Then have that VA send it to another VA and have them record their process of trying to pull off the SOP. They're not going to be able to. That's the whole point of this. But they are going to pass it back to you as a creator and say, I'm really stuck right here. I don't understand what I'm supposed to do. Typically, two iterations of that get you a documented enough SOP that someone else could come in and perform the task that you're doing on autopilot, you don't even consider. And so it's a combination, Matt, of not only the process documentation, but then helping the entrepreneur kind of recalibrate their emotional state because this is their baby. They've been doing this thing for so long. How do I trust that somebody else is going to do it as well as I am? The answer is you're not. They're not supposed to. Most tasks inside the business can run at 80% of the efficiency of the founder and be just as successful. That extra 20%, let's say something very mundane like paying bills. We got to pay bills. Accounts payable are part of every business across the board. You might have a very specific way to do it, but if you can document how you pay bills, if they're only 80% as good as you, but they follow the process and they keep your books at least in the same alignment you've got them in now, it's fine. It's okay. It's okay to give up that 20%. Because that to me starts to allow you to reallocate that life force, that energy into things that are really going to make a shift in your business versus the stuff that you're just doing because you've had to. Yeah, I love that you mentioned Loom. I'm starting to use that more and more. Where I am on my journey is I'm starting to raise more capital for real estate. And it is the same process, right? We launch a deal. We have PPMs that we need to send out, OMs that we need to send out. We've got to capture if somebody raises their hand, says they want to invest, we have to send them wiring instructions. We have to receive the wire. We have to confirm the receipt. Then we have to reach back out to them. And that's one of the things my partner and I have been talking about a lot is like, we need to do a documentation of this and stop trying to do all of this ourselves. One of the things that I don't want to pass over is we've shot the videos. We never even thought about having a VA write them up and then sending it to a separate VA to see where they fail in the process because it all makes sense to us. It should make sense to someone else. But until you have someone try to go through what you've been through, that's when you'll figure out where the hiccups are in your process. So that's brilliant. Yeah, thanks. And then what I typically do, Matt, and especially with what you guys just went through, once you document the process, there are brilliant individuals that can come in for pennies on the dollar and figure out how to automate 95% of it. Yep. But most things that, that we do, I have a process automation specialist, and whether it's using Zaps or some sort of fancy software that I'm unfamiliar with, all of a sudden, things that have if-then sequences, much like you're saying, like if we get a wire, then do this. There's just tech that now supports all that for all of us. So you build the sequence out the first time, and it's almost set it and forget it. Fine, Ryan, you sold me. I want to connect with your process specialist. I will connect you offline only because I don't want the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of listeners to also bombard her. But I will introduce you to her. She is truly incredible. That's awesome. I know that you also have a podcast that's about to launch as well called Rethinking Business. And it's really about how do we rethink every part of the business journey. Can you tell us a little bit about who's the podcast for? What do you plan to accomplish with it? And let's go from there. Yeah, Matt. So the podcast itself, Rethinking Business, is just, I'll call it the practical and tactical lessons that I've learned from exiting a handful of businesses, raising $150 million for my private equity fund, growing some businesses. And these lessons are end up being the conversation that every new level of the business requires you to pause and stop and rethink. And that's everything from originally you have your market message match, how most businesses start is, okay, I think I have a product. Will somebody care about it? How does that look? Where does it fit? 
all the way into the most recent hurdle for me is that 50 to $100 million hurdle, where now I have a C-corp and I have stock issuance and I have more advanced tax strategies using trust and preparing for an IPO and what does SOX compliance look like and how do you find a SOX compliance specialist? And there's just a series of things that are really selfishly, Matt, I wanted to document my process and what's going on and just be able to share openly like, man, I did this thing and it's really a bonehead play. You probably don't want to run this one. Let me share with you the two or three other things that, that I've done. So the ideal listener for it is someone that probably has already started a business, right? They're an early stage entrepreneur all the way up into, you're going to find a lot of value in that $5 million a year business or higher. It's going to really start to click when you start saying like, man, how do I go to market and find health insurance for 50 people? And how do I keep my rates low enough? And as I do that, how should I plan for that with cash flow, but also tax offsets? How does that look? There's these conversations that no one shared with me. Like these are things that I didn't have someone to turn to to say, what's this going to look like? And so I've got a lot of those situations that I'm just going to share the story that supports it. I have a framework that's what, why, lesson, learn, apply. What am I going to talk about today? Why should you care? How did I learn the lesson? Because it's not conjecture. Just because you read something in a book, I see the books in your background. I'm a huge reader. I love reading. But just because I read something doesn't mean I'm qualified to teach on it. I believe you got to try it a couple of times and be able to share what you learned from an area of expertise because you attempted it. And then how can you apply it as you're listening? The episodes, Matt, are 15, no more than 20 minutes. They're bite size. I want you to be able to consume them on the way to the office or the gym or wherever you're at. Probably press two times speed and be done with it in 10 minutes, grab the value and then call it a day. Are you, as someone that has a podcast themselves, are you planning on launching these in seasons? Are you planning on starting it from the beginning and working up? So like, how do you launch a business to at the end? How do you extrude stock? Or you just plan on like, whatever's going on with your life right now, I'm going to interject this little nugget for anybody out there that stage in their their journey. Yeah, it's going to be the latter. I'm still going to launch it in seasons. So I have another podcast that's 15 minutes of freedom. And Mm -hmm. I launched that in 2018. I ended up hitting iTunes 17th most downloaded new podcast for 2018. It's got six or 7 million downloads lifetime now. And it was every day, seven days a week. I think I was at 500 episodes for burnout. And yeah, the podcast, you get it. That's a lot of mic time. And so what speaks to me now is I recorded the first, I'll call it season, which is not sequential. It's just things that have come up and I want to share them. And dropping these little 12 episode seasons... So I don't feel so trapped by the content creation in my life. I'm still just like you are, Matt. I'm still running and gunning. I'm still operating multiple businesses. I still have other things that I have to focus on. And I found when I create obligations for myself, it doesn't end up all that well for me. So I want to make it so I can do things that I enjoy, have great conversations like I'm having with you when I feel like it, and put out seasons whenever it makes sense to me because I have enough content to justify another season. Yeah. Love it. Love it. I'm always interested in how other people run their podcasts too, because I'm seeing like the season, it doesn't necessarily need to be a journey, but seasons really help people digest it, go back, take it home, apply it, and now get ready for the next season. So that's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Ryan, you're in sunny Arizona today. So I want to be cognizant of your time and just shift this style to the last round. We're calling this the five toppings. Our first one is, what is your favorite book or what is a book you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? Yeah, so The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz has been a fascinating shift. It came to me just at the right time, much like your bookshelf. I bought it when it first came out. I didn't read it until maybe two weeks ago. And it was just the right messages at the right time for where I'm at inside of Mid 45. So really impactful book, highly recommend it. The audio version I've listened to while I'm at the gym as well. I like to double dip and read and listen. Both are great. Highly recommend the book. Awesome. Our second one is, I believe that the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the habits that you have and the things you do every day. What are some of the habits that you have? Yeah, boy, my life is a perpetual habit, I feel like. So I live 
through this thing called the core four that Garrett J. White introduced me to and, and this group called Wake Up Warrior. And what that basically is there, it's a gamification to life. And you get four points every day. Each of these eight things are worth half a point. So first thing is drink a green smoothie. Do something right that healthily cleanses the body. Then to sweat, that's another half a point. Meditate is a half a point. Journaling is a half a point. Sending a note of appreciation to a loved one is a half a point. Sending a note of appreciation to a friend is a half a point. Reading is a half a point. And then sharing what you read is a half a point. So I've hit all of those just about all of those. I'm not going to claim to be perfect. That's been my structure for the past three or four years is certainly doing those every day. And really the most impactful one for me in this season is being able to be peaceful. And I think meditation is this unique thing that gets a bad rap. For me, meditation is when we hang up, I'm going to sit here in two or three minutes in silence, in gratitude for just spending time with you. And that to me is a meditation that moment. That to me is just being presently aware of the moment and the gifts that are in front of us. So those sort of things for me, I'll remove the word think, have completely changed the leverage that I can put on myself because I feel his term is do the core four before you hit the door so you're ready to go to war. Mm -hmm. You leave your house, the world's coming at you. And I'll tell you, I don't ascribe to that quite so much, but I do feel that when I do that before I leave the house, I just feel more productive. I feel more powerful. I feel more certain. I feel more calm. So those things before 8 a.m., before I walk out the door, almost without fail. That's it. And I think to your point around meditating, for me, that's a a habit I adopted in 2020 and have continued to adopt it over the past several years. And it's so hard to sit there and just control your mind, especially with somebody like you that's doing so many different things. But if you can master your mind, you will get so much more clarity. And I feel like energy because of it as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Our third one is, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? You're capable of way more than you give yourself credit for. Yeah. So I work with a gentleman named William Lamb, who owns a company called Upgrade, U-P-G-R-D, and it's a mental reprogramming. It literally gets into the fact of what goes on in your mind. The the theater of what's playing in your mind is a preview of coming coming attractions in reality. And so it's like, hold on. Perfect example. I don't want to take too much time on this, but I'm here in Scottsdale, here in Phoenix, and I'm at the gym this morning, of course. It's part of how I live. And I walk outside and I see a black Rolls-Royce Cullinan, right? The SUV. Man, how great is that? How awesome is that? And then I look over the other side and there's a white Rolls-Royce Ghost. I'm like, man, this is crazy. Driving back to the hotel and I see a Wraith, the two-door Rolls-Royce. I'm like, I think I want to have all three at the same time. How great would that be to walk outside and get to choose which one of the three? And then an old program in me would have said, man, you don't deserve that or that's gluttonous. You don't need that. None of that matters. I'm capable of it. I know that if I want that enough and I can see it in my mind, I can lead the path, pull it off. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Our fourth one is, what's the thing that you're most proud of in your life? Oh, man. That's a tough one, Matt. I don't give myself credit for much that I do. So I'll say, because you put me on the spot, what I'm most proud of is I was flat broke at 30. Like I said, rental properties ended up in foreclosure that I had, got them out, was able to sell them and get the money out of them. And that was eight years ago for me. There's a lot that has happened in eight years and being able to grow businesses at the level that I am. And really from that place, six weeks ago at mid 45, I called all the employees together and I issued them all stock. And so they're now all owners in this company that our current valuation is pushing toward billion dollars and seeing like, I'm going to change their lives forever. Like, and just incredibly proud to go from really driving this old Cadillac sedan to Ville selling suits because I needed a way to make money to being in front of 100 coworkers and being able to offer them stock in an eight-year period. I'm pretty proud of that. Yeah, I think the common theme of that answer is always, I faced a challenge and overcame it. And based off of the little time we spent here, it sounds like you've been able to overcome it in a big way, which is super humbling and inspiring. Yeah, thank you. 
our last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Yeah. So for me, that is such a brilliant question. I go back and forth between at this moment, Charlie Munger and Steven Schwartzman. And the reason for that is I'm fascinated with the way that they think. It's not so much of what they share. And I think in today's society, there's a lot of people telling us what to do and not a lot of people sharing how they think. And those yes. two individuals are really sharp on sharing how to think, not what to think. And for those of you that don't know, Charlie Munger is Warren Buffett's number two. And I think even Warren would say he's the brains behind the operations and helped expand Warren into seeing not only the small little companies that he could squeeze a penny out of, but the bigger picture of things. So great choices. Thank you. Ryan, fantastic conversation. If our listeners wanted to reach out to you and learn more about you or some of the things you've got going on, where is the best place we could point them? Yeah. So, so Matt, if they go to ryannidell.com, that's R-Y-A-N-N-I-D-D-E-L.com, or oddly enough, on every social media platform possible, it's all the exact same. It's just Ryan Nidell. So any of those places don't have something to sell, don't have something to hawk, just want to connect and add value to your life where I'm able to. Perfect. Ryan, thanks for being on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Matt. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.